This season is made possible with the generous support of the Kimmel Shatsky Traumatic Brain Injury Innovation Fund. Hello and welcome to another episode of Injury is Not Equal. I'm your host, Shaylin, from the Center for Injury Prevention at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. We're on a mission to uncover the truths and realities about injury risk and impact. We're laying everything on the table as we engage in critical conversation in hopes to change the narrative and raise awareness about health inequity in injury. We hope you'll join us. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. This episode contains discussions about intimate partner violence and traumatic events, which may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener's discretion is advised. And the interesting thing about IPV-related brain injury, if you go to the statistics and you go to the literature and the, the research, your prevalence rates are the same. So you have one in eight Canadian women from breast cancer, and you have one in eight Canadian women with the possibility of a brain injury as a result of intimate partner violence exposure. A staggering statistic by guest speaker Lynn Hogg in part one of this episode series. To refresh your memory, Lynn is a PhD candidate and contract faculty member with the Faculty of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University. Lynn is also a research trainee at the Acquired Brain Injury Research Lab at the University of Toronto. In part one, Lynn spoke about her online toolkit called Abused and Brain Injured and highlighted some of the many intersecting identity and system factors that impact risk of IPV-related TBI. The, the next piece is that it happens across um, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, variable education levels. So it's not just happening to one kind of person. It happens to every kind of person. And it can happen overnight. It, it's not... It's not those people who make bad choices. The reality is, though, that some folks are more vulnerable inherently than others because of other intersecting identities. For instance, women with disabilities are more likely to be in violent relationships than women without disabilities, um, which is particularly concerning if you think that that brain injury is a disability. So you can be falling into the category of not having a disability, experience intimate partner violence, be brain injured as a result of that, now you're part of the category of of women with disabilities, now you're more likely to be in a relationship where you're going to experience violence. So I built a toolkit. Well, that works if you have infrastructure and you have internet and you can access it and you would do so. But for communities that have much more, uh, much richer oral traditions, who don't use internet in the same way, who might focus on Facebook rather than websites, we've heard that from these communities, all those pieces act then as barriers to, to what we are calling service uptake. In this episode, our conversation with Lynn continues as we unpack some of the long-term disparities and solutions needed to address IPV-related TBI. As discussed in previous episodes, TBI is considered an invisible injury and often goes undiagnosed. This is especially a concern for survivors of intimate partner violence, where barriers such as safety and control, access, and stigma all play a role. 
it's a huge problem. Um, I would say nearly all the survivors who might fall into this category are more than likely either undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. Um, and part of the, the historical reason for that is just because, as I said earlier, we just didn't know. Um, so, but one of the reasons that IPV survivors are particularly um, susceptible to a misdiagnosis or, or an underdiagnosis is that for many of those women, they, they don't or they can't seek medical care. So first and foremost, safety and control is a major barrier preventing a survivor from receiving appropriate diagnosis and support. By looking for opportunities for safe disclosure and educating various professionals to ask and consider the possibilities in front of them, there's potential to identify more survivors and the possibility of injury to the brain. The stigma that is attached to having been victimized by an abusive partner is huge. And it doesn't have to be that society puts it on you. We certainly do still, but there's an internalized sense of shame. All the messages that we send out in society around, well, did she really make a good choice? Is this really her fault? Why doesn't she just leave? All those messages, she picks them up. She turns them on herself unintentionally unaware. And that is just as powerful a silencing mechanism as anybody sitting across a table looking at you saying, wow, what were you thinking when you got into that position? So I think it's important that we, we need to understand it's not enough for, it's not enough for us to have training in our offices that says that when we're sitting on our side of the desk, we don't say things like that. We don't give that impression. We have a different approach to things. It needs to be more. It needs to be that those messages don't make it out into our everyday language. They don't make it out into our TV. They get cut off on, on social media. It's not, it has to go beyond that work environment because those things are picked up by survivors as well. They're as trained to to react in that way as any of us are um and then there are issues around remote and rural access i mean this is canada it's great if you live in toronto it's not bad if you're living in in winnipeg and kitchener waterloo and victoria is doing all right too you start heading into rural areas into into the maritime provinces into a little bit Northern Ontario, and it gets it to be a bit challenging. You head into remote areas, it doesn't exist. So when you have to be airlifted out of your home, away from your family, into a community that doesn't understand you, doesn't know how to speak your language necessarily, doesn't associate, doesn't have a sense of how to, to work with you culturally, and you're supposed to do that because you've just had the most violent experience of your life and somebody's concerned that maybe there, there are other medical implications that need to be addressed. Plus, you've got broken bones in your face. All of that is supposed to happen because we don't have services on site. So you start to think, well, you know, okay, I can see why maybe they're not even asking for help. It becomes much more challenging. 
Um, and then the last piece of that is it's, it's nobody's fault. If we looked at violence from these sorts of encounters and we thought, well, broken bones heal, bruises fade, psychological damage absolutely takes longer, but we can support it. Nobody thought about an injury to the brain. They just didn't consider that as a possibility. If I had a dollar for every time somebody in frontliner research said to me, I can't believe I didn't think of that. I wouldn't have to ask for funding for, for research. It, it just escaped all of us somehow. Here's all this talk about athletes and concussions. And what is different about a guy on a football field and a woman getting punched regularly in a relationship? Actually, not that much. The mechanism of injury looks a lot similar. The exposure to injury looks really quite the same. And yet, we just didn't let the penny drop on the other side. And that goes for women too. So if they don't think about, if they look at their, their bruises and, and they say, well, you know, it'll be okay in a couple of days. I'll just cope with it. No big deal. You know, it, the, the price I'm going to pay for seeking medical care for some bruises and some scrapes or some cuts, or maybe even a few, you know, some broken bones that aren't healing. I can tape it up, whatever. If nobody understands that there can be damage to the brain, then they're gonna they're just gonna say, okay, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna seek that help. The other sort of piece of that is that the folks who could be offering the help don't ask, and they didn't ask, and they didn't know either. So if your medical training doesn't include information about intimate partner violence, and it certainly doesn't include anything on intimate partner violence and a brain injury, and you're in a busy ER and you're swamped and you've got hundreds of people sitting in your waiting area and you're worried that somebody's going to die because you can't get through your caseload fast enough, you're not going to ask. And I understand that the realities of our system create this. And I'm not trying to to put blame on anyone in frontline in any area, but we need to start asking. We need to become aware of the fact that this is real and it's happening for a lot of survivors. And it doesn't, we can do something about this. It doesn't have to stay this way. For individuals who acquired a brain injury as, as a result of intimate partner violence, what are some of the long-term challenges and disparities that we see in these populations? Um, it First of all, and I think it's the most important message to have, is that um, just because you have experienced this doesn't mean A, that it's permanent, or B, that life can't be better. So I think it's really important to note that um, we can do a lot many, many years post-injury, I don't need to know about it next week. That's great if I do, and it can certainly prevent a lot of things from becoming embedded and leading to the sort of the most uh, challenging outcomes. But we can support women many years post-injury, which is one of the reasons I think it's so important to have these conversations and, and to get that information out there. But um, the reality is that, that the outcome, the potential outcomes are pretty grim in many ways. You're talking about reduced employment, so underemployment or unemployment, 
um, very likely, which is going to lead to poverty, which is is a clear social determinant of health. So you're going to talk about housing challenges. You're going to talk about access to food uh, difficulties. If you don't have a good job, you're probably not likely to have access to medical benefits. So you're going to cut off all of those sort of not governmentally funded benefits that otherwise you might have. Um, and many of those are going to be the kinds of things that help folks in a rehab position, right? So rehabilitation services are often, unless they're unless you're hospitalized and needing rehabilitation, if you're in the community, they're often not covered. So access to that kind of service is quite difficult if you don't have um, those pathways in. Lack of access to childcare. How are you supposed to have a job if you don't have childcare? Um, increased rates of depression and anxiety. We know that amongst the brain injury population, no matter how you got your brain injury, but layer on top exposure to partner violence, you've got PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder rolled right into the mix. And that's one of the things I suspect that in fact, we've been misdiagnosing brain injury as PTSD for a long time. Not to say it isn't there, that um, I think what you probably have is, is double happening all the time. Why wouldn't we expect someone who's been through that kind of experience to have post-traumatic stress disorder? But that diagnosis hides the brain injury diagnosis because it looks very, very similar in many ways. And it's really difficult to tease the two apart, but it's really important that we do. Because if we don't, we're only ever addressing, for instance, a mental health challenge that that needs to be, and a, and a brain injury needs to be addressed differently. And so if you're only ever addressing a mental health challenge, you also start to wonder, well, how come I'm not getting better? What am I doing wrong? What's wrong with me that I don't get better? And then that plays into a whole pile of messaging that she's been being fed for 20 years anyways. So again, you have that cycle of, of internal messaging that has to be stopped and has to be rerouted. Um, we th There's no doubt you've got increased rates of substance use and um, I mean, it's a coping mechanism. If your life is that difficult and that challenging, it's not a surprise that you might find substance use an effective coping me mechanism for yourself. Also, lots of folks with brain injury have an impaired decision-making capacity. They, they suffer from impulsivity. So the whole idea of substance use looks an awful lot more attractive than it might to somebody else. And then there are survivors that we talk to whose partners um, force them into substance use. And, and you know, it's a choice. Either you use substances with your partner or they beat you up. So that comes into play as well. Um, there's no doubt that, that exposure to, to partner violence is a pathway to criminalization. You look at women's um, criminal um not their criminal activity, but what ends up in 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 uh, criminalized populations. So look at the rates of past exposure to intimate partner violence in a criminalized population. So speaking to women who who are in jail or in prison, and the rates of intimate partner violence in their backgrounds is extreme. And part of that goes back to that poverty piece. So if you have to if you have to engage in a criminal activity in order to put food on the table, because you don't have access to an employment situation because you're in an, in a in a violent relationship, right? It all builds on each other, and it ends up with that particular outcome. 
Um, and there's also a much higher risk. Uh, there's a higher risk of suicidality amongst survivors of brain injury. As you can see, there are many intersecting factors involved when an individual experiences intimate partner violence. We heard Lynn touch on the effects to mental health, substance use, and criminal activity. To no surprise, traumatic brain injury is a risk factor for all of these as well. When you layer IPV and TBI together, the risk factors and complexities significantly increase. As we know, TBI can have significant effects on cognition, behavior, and executive functioning. Lynn touches on how these limitations cause unique challenges for IPV survivors. Plus, on top of all of that, you may have someone who has, whose cognitive capacity is impaired. So the kinds of things that we would expect to see in terms of, of cognitive impairment within an IPV survivor would be centered around the executive functions. So planning, organizational skills, memory, the ability to, uh, to prioritize things on a list, uh, the ability to recognize emotion on somebody else's face, all of those things, emotional lability, all of those things are the things that we would expect to see happening the most for these women. And when you think about what a woman needs skill-wise, just straight up skills in order to be able to assess her situation, make a safety plan, and then execute that safety plan effectively, those are all the most important things she needs. And if they've been impaired because of exposure and because of a brain injury, and she is cognitively incapable of accomplishing those things for one reason or another, then you have a position, you have a situation where this is how, this, this is the piece of what I think may be the answer to why don't women leave. Now, I'd rather people be asking, why are people throwing punches? rather than why isn't somebody leaving. But if I need to deal with why isn't somebody leaving or how do I support them in leaving, I want to understand this piece. And I want to be able to get to the bottom of, okay, I need to stop offering you services that are based on the assumption that you are cognitively healthy and your brain works exactly the way I would expect it to. Because I always say, it's like asking someone in a wheelchair to stand and walk out of the room. You wouldn't do it because you accept what the limitations of that chair mean and what that means for that person's capacity. You just build a bigger doorway. Well, I need people to understand the chair of, of cognitive capacity and the ability to, with, with the impact on these executive functions. And then I need a bigger door. And that's kind of what we're working towards, I think. I, that kind of brings us back to that invisible um, injury piece where because it's brain injury isn't always seen physically on the outside, um, we often tend to forget or miss those pieces. And so these survivors are here with these cognitive impairments and we're completely missing that and thinking that you know, you should, why are you not leaving? Exactly. Just like what you said, Lynn, like, why are you not leaving? Why are you not exec um, executing this plan um, or doing X, Y, and Z? But their injury um, is impeding their ability to do that. And so what supports do we have available then to support these survivors and women 
to to put these plans into place and execute these plans um, because there are these impairments that we're missing and we're not we're not supporting. That's a really really interesting piece. And it it's really interesting because it plays out in a lot of different ways. If you play a sort of little mind game and you think about it, and you think, well, okay, so let's just say for instance, let's say her memory is impaired and her communication skills are impaired. So when the first person, when the police officer on the doorstep asks what happens and she tells the person what happens and then the police officer, let's say great job, takes him to the hospital and the hospital asks what happens and the story changes. And then the legal system gets involved. Maybe she's got a lawyer and the story changes again. And then she's on the stand in a court case. And lo and behold, the story changes every time she's answering a question. And then you've got CAS in the background wanting to know about child safety and, and, and the story is changing there. All of a sudden, the picture of this person isn't, if you don't understand that a brain injury can be at the bottom of that, what you see is somebody lying and manipulating. And then all of all of the folks who might have stepped forward to say, oh, I need to help you, don't do that anymore. They take this as a sign, they take this as a choice. She's making a choice to be disingenuous. She's trying to manipulate the system. And so there's an image there that goes along with that that's very different from what could very well be happening. Another one I use is, is the choices that women make. Why did they choose to go back? Why would they contact the person who who was was abusing them? Well, what if impulsivity is part of that? What if reasoning is part of that? What if understanding the emotion on somebody else's face is part of that? Right? So instead of having these pieces of the puzzle speak to her credibility, to me, they speak about, wait a minute, do we have cognitive capacity going on here? Is there something happening with just what kinds of exposure to violence was there? Did she actually experience physical hits to the head, face and neck and or strangulation? Was there a, was there a mechanism of injury that could have resulted in this? Rather than why is she lying to me? Why is she making bad choices? And what we find in frontline is, and this is, I think, probably my favorite part of the job that I have done up until this point, is when I speak to frontline workers and they're angry. Women don't remember to come to the appointments. They can't be bothered to show up. They don't do the homework they were supposed to do. They have X, Y, and Z stories about goodness knows what. And when you've done 20 years in the in the field, burnout is real and, and they're fed up. And then you explain about brain injury and you explain what that looks like and how that might be experienced for a woman and how that might play out in the kinds of ways in which they're trying to offer services. And you can see a physical change come over them. And they understand that this is a human being that is hurt and injured and needs help. And it all changes from there. And I think if you can, if we can support that relationship piece, if we can get more folks to understand what that looks like and how how we can move forward, then that may make a real difference in the lives of, of these women. Thank you so much, Lynn, for such a great discussion on IPD-related TBI. 
If you haven't already, we encourage you to listen to part one of this episode series, where our conversation began. If you would like to know more about the Acquired Brain Injury Research Lab or the Abused and Brain Injured Toolkit, the websites will be linked in the show notes of this episode. Stay tuned for next month's episode, where I sit down with guest speakers, Dr. Matthew Burke and Dr. Vincy Chan, to understand the connection between traumatic brain injury and mental health. This is a really, really critical topic, and I would say our knowledge on this issue is continuing to evolve, and it's really one of probably the most important uh, ongoing discussions that experts around the world are having with respect to concussion and recovery is this mental health component. It's way more important than I think initially realized, and it's it, it's likely bi-directional. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Talk Injury. We encourage you to give our podcast a follow so you can be updated when new episodes are released. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast.